All right, good morning. Thank you again for being a part of this scattered gathering together. I pray that this uh, time continues to be a blessing, continues to sustain and grow you uh, as we meet in these scattered ways. And we just ask for your continued prayers uh, for God's intervention and work, his powerful working so that we could indeed get back into this place worshiping all together. Praise God that the church is not where we gather, that it is his people. And so his church remains strong and firm regardless of whether we gather here or not. But, but I know we long to do that. So keep, keep praying for that. And we trust that God will bring that about. That day is coming. Uh, we're going to come to a time now where we'll look at a passage from God's word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app or whatever, would you turn to the book of Revelation? Again, we are uh, beginning this uh, summer teaching series for the summer months, book of Revelation. Uh, easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible, so turn there to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, our passage is actually verses 4 through 8, but we're just going to read into that with the context to understand. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Let's uh, read this together. Here's what John writes. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now here's our passage beginning at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you. And peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. What a word it is. Wow. Uh, let me take a moment and just pray for us. Uh, ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dig into this together. Let me pray for us. Spirit of God, we ask as we do each week that you would come and illumine this word to us. Reveal what it is you want to show us in this word. Reveal your Son, oh God, to us more and more deeply or for the first time. Help us to see what you want us to see and accomplish what it is you want to accomplish through this word, O God, not by any ability of mine, but by your power and strength, the strength that raised Jesus from the dead and that you've said is now at work within your adopted sons and daughters. God, work powerfully through this word and accomplish the purpose you want to accomplish. Do what we ask, God, for your glory and for our good. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine yourself in in two different scenarios with me for just a minute. Okay, so the first one 
You are in London, England, 1940, during the Second World War. And right in the middle of you're, you're, you're doing your work, you're, you're in your classroom, you're preparing your meal, all of a sudden you hear the two-tone siren begin to sound over the city, which now everyone has come to know by this point in time, means there is an impending air raid coming against the city, that enemy bombers are about to fly over your city and start dropping bombs. And although you don't know where the bombs are going to land, you don't know what buildings and what lives are going to be destroyed, what, as you head down for the basement of your school or down into the underground tubes to, in order to, to shelter during this bomb raid, what you know for certain is that this siren that you're now hearing signals a coming ruin. But now, second... Second scenario, now imagine that you're gathering for a family meal. Family meal, people have come into town, you're all gathering together, but during that meal, someone begins to, to choke on a piece of food, and although you do all the stuff that you're supposed to do to help somebody clear their airway, for whatever reason, uh, the food becomes more deeply lodged, their airway becomes completely obstructed, and now they're on the dining room floor receiving CPR. And, and although you don't have any idea how this scenario is going to play itself out, what you know for certain is that the wail of the ambulance siren that you can now hear what signals a coming rescue. So, as I just mentioned, as we've been talking about since last week here, we're, we're taking a break, taking a break from our Ephesians series, beginning this new teaching series for the summer months that's going to take us through here, uh, uh, entitled Dear Church, which is going to take us through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And, and having just spent the last six months in the book of Ephesians and looking at the reconciling work of Jesus to unite all things to himself and to bring uh, his bride, the church, into existence, what we're going to look at now, and, and I pray be, be built up and, and grown by in this series, to borrow from John Stott's book on these very same chapters in Revelation, we're going to look at what it is that Jesus thinks about his church, or really, what is Jesus' heart toward his church? And while it probably won't surprise you at all to learn about the passionate, protective love that Jesus has for the church, and we're going to see that very clearly in these seven letters to the churches that are contained in these first three chapters, what absolutely might surprise you is to hear the, the equal passion and zeal that Jesus also has for the purity and the integrity of his church's witness in those same letters. Like to hear words of, of rebuke and, and correction alongside words of, of love and affirmation. And hopefully we'll understand more and more about why that is as, as we get into those letters that, that John records for Jesus to these churches. But I say all that by way of introduction just to help you really understand uh, the title for this series, Dear Church. Namely, just that... First of all, the church is incredibly dear to Jesus, and that Jesus also has some things that he wants his church to know. And so he writes it 
through John in these letters to the churches. But before we get into looking at those letters specifically, what we're going to look at first over the next two weeks, actually, is the incredibly important introduction that the Apostle John gives in the book of Revelation that comes just before those letters that we have here recorded in chapter 1. And this, this is actually essential reading, okay? Like, we, we need to start here and look at this first to even understand the, either the seven letters or the book of Revelation as a whole. And the reason for that is because what John's introduction does for, for every reader of Revelation in particular is to reset our vision. It resets our vision, our entire picture of Jesus, actually. It resets that picture from a humble first century rabbi that we have recorded in the Gospels to the the exalted, ascended, glorified picture of Jesus as he now presently exists. So so we see that in in our passage today, but you're definitely going to see it in the passage that we look at next Sunday. Just this, this epic, huge vision of Jesus as he presently exists in his ascended, glorified state. And what you see there, look again, verse 1. Chapter 1 of Revelation says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's revealing who he is. And that Greek word for revelation, apocalypsis, which means actually just uncovering, unveiling of something. That's what John's doing here. The the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the the revelation of who he is as he presently exists. So, So in a very same, just as like Jesus revealed and unveiled himself to Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were kind of like, we're seeing who you truly are in your glorified state in the very same way, just just in a very real sense. John is doing the same thing here. He is unveiling Jesus' present divine reality here to his readers, helping them to see and to grasp the, the size and the scope of Jesus in all his fullness as he presently exists. Just helping us to move our, our reset our vision and picture of Jesus to this as he presently is, which, which I trust you'd agree is something incredibly important for anyone to see and understand, particularly when the, the problems and the circumstances of our lives appear just massive and, and too big to overcome, to be able to see the size of our Savior in relation to the size of our problems. Incredibly important and, and helpful and encouraging in the midst of those times, but which actually this, this revelation had particular relevance to the original audience of this letter because it was written to a church at a time when it was experiencing internal danger. That is, there were false teachers within the church diluting and polluting the truth of the gospel, but also experiencing external danger as, as ongoing violent persecution was coming against the church during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. In fact, as we'll see here as we read, John himself was presently a victim of that persecution. Being the last of the living apostles now at this point, Tertullian records that John, the apostle, was first boiled in oil. He was plunged into boiling oil for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he's only later exiled to the island of of Patmos here where he's receiving or he's writing and he receives this revelation of Jesus because he miraculously survived what was supposed to be his execution. They plunge him into boiling oil. He, they, he doesn't die, and so they're like, oh, you know what? Exile him to that prison island of Patmos. Just get him out of here. They don't know what to do with him. But he, he's certainly experiencing this persecution firsthand under the emperor Domitian. 
And while there's a lot of things that, that John reveals about Jesus in this introduction to his letter, what we're going to focus on over the next two weeks in particular is just two things, actually. Just two. This week, we'll focus on what John reveals in verse 7 about that, that, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is, is coming. And then next week, we'll shift our focus to what John reveals in verse 18, that Jesus is the living one. That's what we're going to look at over these next two weeks. Okay, so today, as it relates to Jesus coming, just as we saw with those two different scenarios that we talked about as we began this morning and seeing how the promise of coming can actually evoke two very different kinds of feelings, two very different experiences, the promise of coming, there are also, as we see here, two different realities that Jesus' coming represents. Two different experiences that his coming brings, and that's actually how we're going to divide up our passage as we look at it this morning. And so we'll see, first of all, Jesus coming as rescue, and then we'll look at Jesus coming as ruin. Jesus coming as rescue and as ruin. So if you've closed your Bibles, your Bible app, would you open it again to our passage here in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. Follow along with me now as we begin on this summer teaching series, embark here on this teaching series together, dear church. Okay, so let's look first of all at Jesus coming as rescue. Jesus coming as rescue. Now, it's important to know right from the beginning as we just dive into this, that although it, it, it contains letters within it, these seven letters to the churches, that the letter, that the, Reb, the book of Revelation itself is a letter. We need to see that, that this whole book here is actually a letter written from John to the churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, in the same way that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a letter to those churches in Ephesus and the surrounding regions. However, yeah, absolutely, which you've probably already seen, or maybe you just know, Revelation, yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of letter, absolutely a different kind of letter, like the 66 Books that actually make up our, our Bible are actually, if you know this, they're actually, many of them written in a variety of different styles and, and genres. And so the style here, the, uh, rather than just being a standard letter or sometimes called epistle, like, like Ephesians or Romans or something like that, the style or the genre of the book of Revelation is known as apocalyptic. This is apocalyptic literature. Actually, we get that word from this first verse of Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So this is apocalyptic literature, different kind of letter, which means, all that means we just need to look at it a little bit differently, okay? Just look at it differently in the same way that you wouldn't read a poem about a particular event in history in the same way that you'd read a history book talking about the same event, okay? They're both describing the same event, they're both talking about it, they're both true, but because they're written in different styles or genres, we know we need to read them differently. Same thing here with the book of Revelation. Now, it's true, yes, at some point in history, the word apocalypse somehow became to, became to be known as some kind of cataclysmic, doomsday, end-of-the-world type event. But again, the, the, the Greek word apocalypse, apocalypse simply means revelation. It means, it means unveiling or, or, or revealing of something. This is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, even though there is war and, and judgment described in the book of Revelation, and, and, and that this genre uses all kinds of symbols and startling visual imagery in order to communicate its message, 
What John's letter is revealing to these persecuted churches here is not at all the end of the world, but it's renewal. That's what he's describing here as Jesus is revealed. As he is revealed at last in his glory and he comes and and returns and sin's curses removed and heaven and earth become joined as one. In essence, as many people have described this book, Revelation, it's the revelation of how the story ends. It's showing us how the, the story of human history ends, which, I mean, just seeing that in itself shows us that in apocalyptic literature, there, there's, there's a illuminating, illuminating kind of part about it, but there's also a prophetic future-looking aspect to it as well in this style of writing. I mean, you see that there again. Chapter 1, verse 1, John speaks of the revelation showing us the things that must soon take place. It's going to reveal things that must soon take place. So it's revealing both future and even presently unseen realities. That's what John hopes to do here as he writes this apocalyptic letter. I love the way Daryl Johnson describes this genre of apocalyptic literature in general and the book of Revelation in particular, saying this, quote, The fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is that things are not as they seem. Or more exactly, things are not only as they seem. Which, if you think about it, it is a, a revelation that would be especially helpful for those who are presently living in a reality that seems hopeless, to know, okay, I'm not seeing the whole picture here. There's more going on than I can presently see. Incredibly hopeful. And the first future as well as presently unseen reality that John wants to reveal to these churches struggling under both internal and external persecution, we see here in verse 7 in particular, where John writes this. Look again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. So already there, there's a number of different realities that, that John reveals. Let, let's, let's look at just a few of them a little bit more closely, and then just talk about why it is that they still matter for our lives today, just as they did for these first churches that John was writing to. So let's look, first of all, at at who it is that's coming. Look at that, because verse 7 just says, Behold, He is coming. But we need to just look back a little bit some of the previous verses to understand exactly who He is. So first of all, in verse 4, in the beginning of verse 5, John pronounces this blessing over the churches of grace and peace to you from each person of the Trinity. That's what he's using that poetic language to describe. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what that language means. And then, second half of verse 5 and into verse 6, John gives us this description. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which, which, which when we read all together, very clearly is, is pointing to a description of Jesus. He's describing Jesus as well as his reconciling work on the cross, identifying him as the the he who is coming with the clouds, something that's supported by Jesus' numerous promises of return himself in the Gospels as well as at the end of Revelation. So this is Jesus who is coming. But one thing to notice from his description of Jesus here in particular is the way he is described according to his relationship to the church in particular. Do you notice that? 
It doesn't describe Jesus' love for all humanity in general, but for those on whom he has set his love in particular in a way that that brings about redemption by his blood, that transfers us into his kingdom, and that transforms us into these priests, into these ministers of reconciliation in his kingdom. So he's talking about a very particular relation about who Jesus is coming for. Okay, so hopefully that clears that up. We we can see now who, who is coming as well as who he's coming for. The next thing John reveals in verse 7 is that Jesus is coming. He says, behold, he is coming, specifically with the clouds, which uh, throughout the Bible very often signifies the divine presence of God. Clouds very often signify this. And, And maybe to help us understand more fully what the promise of Jesus coming would have meant to these churches who were who were that, that it was struggling in all these ways under persecution, would be to think for a moment about what does it feel like when we are feeling alone, when we're feeling in danger or whatever, and we know that no one's coming, that no one's coming to help. What does that feel like? I think that would really help us understand just how much this means to the churches that John is writing to. Like, for instance, my heart is still wrecked. When I think about the description uh, Dr. Russell Moore gives of the, the Russian orphanage, which him and his wife uh, traveled to to adopt their two sons, and the awful just silence that he describes, the silence that he describes as him and his wife walk through a room filled with babies, filled with babies in cribs, but who are entirely silent. Listen, not because they were sleeping, but because they had simply stopped crying out, because they'd come to learn over time that no one was coming. They could cry for hours all they wanted. No one was coming to pick them up. No one was coming to soothe them. No one was coming to help. And so they had just stopped crying, room filled with babies, just quiet. So imagining that reality on the one hand, I think gives you some understanding at least of what it, what it would have meant to these churches experiencing ravaging wolves, tearing them apart from, from, from both outside as well as from within, to hear someone is coming. Somebody had, had heard their cries for help and that the same Jesus who came in humility to redeem them was now coming with power and majesty, the ruler of kings on earth, to rescue them. He is coming. Lastly, notice how John tells these churches that Jesus isn't just coming, but he's coming in a way that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, which I think is intended to sound a clear note of vindication to these churches that John is writing to, to help them understand that every blasphemous, mocking accusation against their foolish stupidity for following a fake Messiah and giving up their lives for nothing that that would also be one day vindicated as those who, who mocked them and who probably these people literally uh, in this historical context would have had a hand in putting Jesus to death would also, they would see him return in glory and power as he came to rescue, silencing their mocking laughter and putting them to shame. I think this would have had the hopeful effect both of encouraging the church to faithful endurance, hey, hey keep holding on, and also Encouraging them not to seek vengeance themselves. As, for instance, uh, Paul says in Romans 12, instead that they are to leave vengeance to the Lord. Saying, don't worry, that every eye will see this rescue come. 
And although, yes, this, this was written to the churches in Asia some 2,000 years ago, the thing you must never lose sight of is that if you've been made a part of God's reconciled and redeemed by, the, by, by his bride, you've been made a part of his bride yourself, receiving his forgiveness by salvation through his blood, you can hear this promise of Jesus coming as being spoken over you as well. You can hear this promise and, and you can feel the strength and the life-giving hopefulness of the promise as though it were spoken to you because, listen, for all who have had the eyes of their hearts enlightened, who, who know the hope to which you've been called as well as the glorious inheritance of his saints and the riches of that, this is spoken to you. It's spoken to me. This, this promise is for us as well. Jesus plainly told his followers, John 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And although, yes, in the immediate context of that, he was speaking particularly of the, the presence of, that, of, that he was going to have by his Holy Spirit that he would pour out after his resurrection and ascension, he surely had in mind as well the promised day when he himself would return and set all things right, bring justice for his faithful witnesses, and unite heaven and earth together in himself as one. It's a promise for us as well as his bride, the church, today. I, I don't know about you, but when, when I think about what this means for me myself, and I think about this being a promise for me of Jesus coming and return, what, the image that it stirs in my mind is, I don't know if you've seen this, of that incredible moment in J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, novel-turned film, The Two Towers, the, the second of the Lord of the Rings films, where, where Aragorn and, and all of his fellow soldiers are fighting the Battle of Helm's Deep. You just picture that in your mind. And they're fighting this battle. They're, they're wearing themselves out. But just this mass, this, this sea of orcs that just continues to pour forward and, and eventually overwhelms the, the walls and the defenses of Helm's Deep. And it seems like the battle is all but lost. But then suddenly, up on the slopes above, you see Gandalf and the, the recovered armies of Gondor appearing and, and come charging down the mountainside in a glorious display of blinding light and deafening shouts to come to their rescue, to bring about victory where defeat was otherwise certain. It's an incredible picture. That's, that's what I just picture in my mind. I tend to see things just cinematically. That's what I picture and this moment in Revelation looks like and feels like when I think about Jesus coming to rescue me from, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The, these enemies that, that continue to come with seemingly endless force, always seeking to, to find any area of weakness in order to destroy me. And there's many days when, when this battle literally just feels hopeless. But, but, but that's where this promise, the thought of the hope of the promise of Jesus coming, gives me strength. gives me strength to hold fast and to keep fighting. So that's, that's for me, but what about for you? Think, take, why not take a moment right now? I don't know if you want to pause or just maybe after this message is done, before you just go on to whatever it is, take some time right now and consider all that Jesus coming means for you in your own life. What does it mean for, for whatever ways you're currently struggling, whatever ways you feel like giving up and like you can't go on? What does this feel like to you? What does it mean to you to know he is coming? 
Or think, for instance, what does it mean uh, to, to the church around the world today, some of whom we are seeing particularly experiencing uh, exactly the same kind of violent persecution coming against them for their faith in Jesus? How does it feel to know that Jesus, in all of his resurrected glory and power and majesty, is himself coming? That he hears your cries for help as well as the groaning of all of his creation. And he is coming with the clouds of heaven to rescue. How does it feel as well to know that every eye will see his coming? They're going to see it. That This won't be some kind of secret rescue mission where all of a sudden you're just out of there and everyone's just going to be like, ah, I don't know. Whatever, who knows what happened. No, they're going to see his coming, that his return to rescue will, will be something that is seen and, and noticed by all. Uh, as Jesus himself said, for instance, Matthew 24, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Or as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is coming. Coming to rescue. And every eye will see it. Okay, so that's Jesus coming as a rescue. A day that surely... If you know Jesus as your Savior day, we all long for. The last thing I want to look at very quickly for just a few moments is Jesus coming as ruin. Jesus coming as ruin. And we need to look at this because just as we saw in those two opening scenarios that we looked at, the promise of coming is not always a hopeful thing. Right? Sometimes the promise of coming can be a dreadful thing that evokes feelings of fear, of mourning, and sadness. And you see that particularly when you look at the response uh, to Jesus coming that John speaks of there in verse 7. That every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. Then he goes on to add, and all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. And I think we read that in the natural conclusion that we come to when we read something like that is we think, we think John's referring to those who have pierced him as meaning those who have rejected Jesus' free offer of salvation by grace through faith and remain under his just judgment for their sin. Or maybe we even think he's referring historically specifically to people who literally put Jesus to death. We can think that he's just referring to them, that, that those people, whoever they are, that one day they're going to have this collective kind of, oh shoot, moment when, when the skies open up and Jesus himself returns and they realize, hey, Jesus really was who he said he was. And, and yeah, okay, I think that's, that's absolutely included in John's teaching here. And yet, when you think about what, for instance, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3 when he reminds us, hey, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and that means that we are all guilty of sin for which Jesus had to come and die, which means, therefore, that in some real sense, we are all those who have pierced him. It makes me wonder if we don't need to take a second and just look a little bit more deeply below the surface rather than just ignoring this as though oh, that part doesn't apply to us because I'm part of the church. Makes me think, for example, of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 24 when he says this, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Which, listen, 
That, that's not at all to, to say that we, we need to, hey, you just got to stay awake. You got to follow Jesus perfectly, never make any mistakes, never take any rest. You just got to be constantly working or you're out of the kingdom. Yeah, he's not going to rescue you anymore because you, you weren't following him perfectly. No, that's not at all to say that. But simply to ask if there couldn't actually still be some sense of mourning and loss felt at Jesus' return, even for those who are his own. When you just consider situations, for instance, like skies open up and suddenly Jesus, we, we see his coming and, and we're in a situation where we know in that moment we weren't trusting his, his promise. We weren't being faithful to trust him in some opportunity and, and, and believe him. We were trying to go our own way. And suddenly he's returning. We're like, oh. Or, or we, were, we were unfaithfully stewarding all, all of the many blessings that he's given us at his return. Or, or he returns and, and just we have that moment where we recognize the indifference that we've had many times with regards to our spiritual maturity. We're like, oh, I'll get to that. I'll get to you know, spending more time in God's word and be trying to grow to be more like him. And suddenly Jesus returns. And it's not that we're not saved. It's not that he hasn't come to rescue us. But there's some sense of like, oh, I, I, wish, I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have believed you more. I wish I would have, I can see now that you, you really are real. And, and, and now I'm, I'm mourning in the sense that I wish I, I would have trusted you more. I would have believed you more. That, that's all I mean. So, so yes, yes and amen. I believe the primary call of this, John's word here is to call those who are presently living in opposition to Jesus and or those who are, I don't know, waiting for the right time or whatever it is to, to surrender their lives to him and confess him as Lord. No, to come to him today. Come today, receive his free offer of salvation by grace through faith. As, as the author of Hebrews says repeatedly, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. First, Jesus also said in Matthew 4, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So I think, yeah, absolutely, the call is to see and believe, hey, Jesus, he is coming one day. He is coming one day, and that for all who have lived their lives in, in rejection or just ignoring or rebellion of him, his coming will not bring rescue, but ruin. But to all who have received him, all who have been, been, been made children of God by grace through faith, I wonder if John's call here isn't also to us. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, for instance, where you, you've been given a job by, by your boss or maybe your dad, and, and you go out and you're working on it, you're doing it with, with whoever you're working with, and then, I don't know, maybe... Um, one of your friends is working with does something funny or, or your brother or your sister starts bothering you and you start going off and doing that. You start goofing off for a minute and then that's when your dad comes. That's when your boss comes in and here you are having some big water fight instead of doing the job that you were hired to do. And just that feeling of, of shame, of, of embarrassment when you just realize that you weren't working in such a way that you were ready for their return. And so maybe that the call to us is that we not live lives of unreadiness, but readiness. Live lives of readiness, expecting his coming and living in a way as if we believed his returning was tomorrow, because it could be. So that as much as possible, not perfectly, no, but as much as possible, just as Paul charged his young protege, Timothy, that we might do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. 
I know that's the desire of my heart, and I know I fail at that often. But it's what I want to do. I want to work and, and live my life as though I believed, I really believed he's returning tomorrow. I would live in such a way that I would not need to be ashamed. The question, I think, of course, that inevitably arises when you look at this hopeful promise of Jesus coming, however, and perhaps you sensed it as well, is how is the promise of Jesus coming hopeful in any way when over 2,000 years after making it, he still hasn't kept the promise? Like, Every generation from those who first heard it until today has come and gone without Jesus coming. So how is this promise of Jesus coming supposed to either affect the way that I live today or give me hope in the midst of the ways that I'm presently suffering? Like, how is this supposed to work? And actually, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, you see that this is a question that people were asking all the way back in the first century. This is not some new uh, a unique question. People were asking the very same question all the way back in the first century. Peter writes this, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is it, right? Like you saw, you're saying he's coming. Where is it? They go on, um, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But in response to this scoffing, Peter reminds them that God had already come once in response to human wickedness. And he did this uh, as he did in the days of Noah in order to rescue and renew his creation uh, as well as those who were his own. And then following that reminder with an often quoted verse, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some count slowness. He is being patient with you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See it? They were asking the very same question. Peter's like, listen, don't, don't be fooled. The promise is sure. He's not slow. He's being patient. And so, first of all, for those who would scoff at this promise, as we close this morning, those who would scoff at this promise, the call here is to remember the faithfulness of God to, to come already in the past and not to presume that his waiting to come presently means either that he's not coming at all or that, that we've got all the time in the world in order to respond to his free offer of forgiveness. No, today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn from your sin and believe the gospel. None of us knows. Not, not one single one of us hearing this knows that we have tomorrow. We don't know that. Never mind that he's going to come again. We don't know that we'll go to him. Are you ready to stand before Jesus? That's the call here. If you, if you hear his voice, turn to him in faith. Receive his free offer of forgiveness so that his return becomes rescue and not ruin. But to those who do have faith in his coming, those of you who would say, no, I'm, I'm part of his redeemed church bride and, and I'm waiting for his coming, but I'm just simply weighed down. I'm fearful in the midst of the waiting. I think the call for you and for me today is, first of all, to trust. To trust, as John says there in verse 8, that our God is the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. 
that he is the God of human history from the beginning to the end, and he sees the perfect sweep of everything, and so his timing is perfect. He will come exactly when he knows is the right time to come. And we don't get to be the ones who judge that from our small little window of time. He knows best. Secondly, to trust in the reliability of his promises. He's been faithful to keep them in the past and to live our lives in such a way that I'm always seeking to be ready for his coming. I think that's what it means as well. To be, to be people of readiness, whether I see his coming in my lifetime or not. Because I know and I believe that because I believe he could come tomorrow, if I'm living my life that way, it's absolutely going to affect the way that I live and love and serve in order that I could seek in every way possible to be that worker who does not need to be ashamed. And lastly, to recognize that in saving me from the just punishment for my sin when he came the first time, Jesus has already come and rescued me in a way that matters most for all eternity. And so whether or not I see the day of his last coming, his last and final coming, whether or not I see that day, I can look beyond my own desire to be rescued here in the present, which is just really focused on me, and remember that his waiting to come is not in any way an indication of his lack of care for me, but of his care for the billions and billions of men and women who have yet to receive his rescue. Even so.